This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara ong Associate Director at JMU Civic, and co-hosting with me tonight is... Hi, I'm Sarah Akers, the Woodson Martin Democracy Fellow at JMU Civic. And we are joined by three faculty experts at JMU who are going to be discussing climate change with us. Hi, I'm Greg Wren. I am Associate Professor of English. Hello, I'm Tobias Gerken. I'm Assistant Professor in Integrated Science and Technology. Hi, I'm Carol Nash. I'm Associate Professor in Geographic Science and Integrated Science and Technology. So thank you all for joining us for this discussion as part of Global Climate Change Week. And we're also having this discussion ahead of the Copenhagen 26 conference, which will be taking place in Glasgow in just a few weeks. I wonder if you all could start by sharing uh, why you have chosen to research the environment and climate change. Well, so um, I'm an environmental scientist by training. And actually, I went into this because I liked science. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. Did I want to do chemistry, biology, physics? And so it was kind of like a nice way of doing all of it at the same time and really digging into kind of like how things work because we live in the environment, it's all around us, and I just wanted to know how it works. And over time, I kind of went towards climate. I'm really interested in water and drought and things like that, which is obviously something that as the climate is changing, we're seeing that some places are going to have less water, some places are going to have more water, and we need water for everything we do. Well, I, um, I am not a trained scientist, <laughs> um, but I do think that you know, for us to solve climate change, a lot of us have to, have to, have to learn a lot about science to understand the problem. Um, so I first, um, I guess, came to this from the coral reefs of Florida. So I was snorkeling when I was nine. It was my first time snorkeling in the, in the Florida Keys. And one of the first um, large-scale bleaching events had just taken place in the Florida Keys. And I didn't know the, bef the before, but I, like, you know, what it was like before the, the bleaching happened. But I knew at age nine, being there, that this reef was in grave in grave danger and, 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 you know, really facing some real problems. And I could feel it in my heart. And um, that led me as a creative writer, as an adult, to write about climate change and write about um, this intersection of the personal and the ecological. So I'm a, I'm a scuba diver um, these days, as well as a poet and a, and a memoirist. So I'm an archaeologist, and my specialty within archaeology is the study of how human beings have adapted to climate change. It's something that I've been studying for about 35 years. And um, I think the reason that I ramped up this interest and really began teaching about it is from my own experiences in the field and particularly working on Virginia's Eastern Shore and watching the Chesapeake Bay as sea level is rising take archeological sites that have been on stable land surfaces for 10,000 years. and. Um, working with communities there, I do a lot of citizen science, and working with communities there, it struck me that while from a scientific perspective, the libraries are on fire, these archeological sites contain tremendous information about our past and how we have adapted 
uh, to changes. But more importantly, the people who live there today are vested in these places. And for them to see the kind of loss that is taking place is very difficult. And there are really serious implications for communities. And so I'm working now on a project with my students that is largely based on uh, being over on the Eastern Shore and working with folks who will take us around in their boats and show us where things used to be, where there's now water, and um, getting those things documented so that their stories are told. Thank you all for sharing those different perspectives. And that's actually a nice transition into the next question. Um, you shared why you care about climate change. I wonder if you could tell us why you think students and everyone should care about climate change. Well, let me go first. I mean, climate change is happening and I mean, we're seeing it around us. And like many issues, it's one that, that's gonna stick around for the long time. Um, we're seeing the effects. Um, like manifesting itself, I mean, not only in temperatures getting warmer, which is maybe not like something that, well, temperatures are getting warmer, but not, that's not what we're feeling. We're, what we're feeling is really the impacts it has on, on water. Like if we think about like water supplies in the American West, like Lake Mead is, is getting empty. We're seeing it in, in more fires. We're seeing it in, in ecosystems changing. So which means that plant species are going away, which we depend on. Um, and so overall, I mean, it's, it's happening right now. And um, if we currently look in the news, I mean, sort of things are get, getting worse. And there's reasons why they're getting worse, because we're burning fossil fuels. And so as long as we don't change basically what's causing the problem, we are not going to be solving the issue. And the issue is, is, is starting to become really, really important, because it's going to affect us, and especially students who are quite a bit younger than us and are going to be longer around than, than some of the people on the podium, including me. Yes, it, it, it strikes me that, um, you know, the answer, that, the answer to that question is, is just that. It's, I mean, it's, um, it's that this is our home and it's, it's the only um, place within at least 4.1 light years that we know we can, we can, we can live here. Uh, and so we can survive on, on this planet. And so um, it seems to me that, you know, we have to think about nature as, you know, n nature is not something that's, it's, it's not just a backdrop for selfies, right? It's, it's for, many, for many people in the world, like I think, I think about coral reefs, you know, 500 million people across the, across the earth depend on coral reefs um, for their food. It's their pantry, it's their seawall, uh, it's their 401k, uh, it brings tourists, um, and coral reefs are, are um, slated to become the first ecosystem on Earth to go extinct, probably by the time these students in the audience are um, middle-aged. So it's very, it's very scary, and, it, and, it, and, and us, as, us in the West, us with air conditioning, uh, you know, with Amazon Prime and so forth, you know, we're so insulated from it, but we already see climate refugees, and those refugees are gonna need a place to live, and they're gonna, they're gonna be crossing borders. And so um, there can be geopolitical instability. So we really have to think about, more and more, we have to think about ourselves as interconnected. We think of ourselves as separate, but we're interconnected. And, um, and that, that truth is gonna become more and more apparent 
um, as temperatures rise and, and the climate becomes more unstable. So we have to do something. Well said. Um, when, I'm a, when I'm often asked this question, and I am, why should more people care about climate change? We all know that you can't make people care about things that they don't understand. It's very difficult to do that. And we can come up with a list miles long of why in our, it is in our self-interest to care about climate change as a species. But I would like to bring a different dimension in and just point out that climate change is related to many other problems that we know have existed um, and that we have created as a species. We get in trouble with these big brains of ours all the time. And if you look at our history in the long term, and I mean going back through the history of our species, we we've, are pretty good at being short-sighted in the way that we approach things. And what we are seeing now, as the video pointed out, is systems at work here. What we're recognizing is that our short-term thinking has caused long-term problems. And these are problems that are interconnected. So when we talk about water and its availability, we talk about food and what might happen. We talk about the coral reefs and those things. These, these are problems that are all interconnected. And on the one hand, it makes them seem even more insurmountable. But if you care about these things, it means that you know something about a piece of this. You may not understand everything there is to know about the chemistry of greenhouse gases, but you know something. You know something about food. You know something about poverty. You know about the UN Sustainable Development Goals and how far we are from reaching those. So I think that when we say, how do we help people care more about climate change, we do reinforce this idea of interconnectedness. We point out that in the English language, the meaning that we now have of nature as separate from culture is very recent. It's actually 19th century. It emerged at the time of the Industrial Revolution. Before the 19th century, if you look at dictionaries, what you find is that nature referred to human nature. It did not refer to this thing apart from us. And if you look at indigenous languages around the world today, that division between myself and what we would call nature does not exist. There are no words for this. And so, again, we're seeing change that we have brought about in recent years, in, re in the last century or so, one could argue perhaps going back to the Neolithic Revolution. But the fact is, there's nothing like this that has happened before that we know of, that we have evidence for. The rate of change, the magnitude of change, the way that it is going to affect every system on this planet. This is why we care. This is why we care. So we know that there are many scientific and technological solutions that are being developed right now to address climate change. Um, we know that there are individual actions that can be taken, even though individuals acting alone are not going to solve the issue. Um, we know that systemic change is need needed. I wonder if each of you can talk a little bit about um, what inhibits our ability to actually make change in this moment, especially as it has become even more clear that we are going to exceed the one and a half degree um, target that scientists warned about. other than Joe Manchin. <laughs> well, it's, it seems to me that, um, that on one hand, 
indiv individually, there's a lot of paralysis right now. So when I talk to my students about climate change, there's not, there are some students who are maybe on the fence about it, about whether or not it exists. But, but in general, my students are overwhelmed by these, these, these changes and these forecasts and, and what's happening right now. And so they don't know what to do. And even in the video we watched, I mean, it's, it seemed that at least, the, at least at the end, the opinion piece tells us that really it's not, a, it, it, there, there are things we can do on an individual level, but really we have to start at the top. And what, what, has, to, what has to give is the people in charge, the, the, the billionaires of the world, the, the governments of the world, institu institutions like JMU, all, all of these sort of big players have to collectively reimagine what our civilization, how, it, how it's going to operate. Because, uh, yeah, I just think there's too much, there's simply too much money invested in extracting these fossil fuels uh, from the ground and burning them. There's too much money to be made doing that. And that has to be disincentivized somehow. Um, but it's it's it seems it's it's a very it's a very formidable problem and 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 so it, it does seem that it needs to be more about systems and more about you know big players as opposed to individuals i mean i think i i only have to to add to that in the sense that the scale of the problem is that everything has to happen every at, at all the time now and that is just really really difficult to, to approach problems like that. I mean, we're, we've never been in, in a situation where we live in a globally shared world where our, our actions basically affect everyone. We've never lived in a world where um, like our wealth, the way we live, basically um, has, has very strong global implications because like I mean, I drove my car here this morning, and obviously my car burns fossil fuels. Um, the house I live in um, is heated with fossil fuels, even though it's electric, but it comes at some point from fossil fuels. Um, the food I eat emits fossil fuels. We've heard all of these things. So it's, it's very, very difficult to get started on this because everything has to, has to happen at the same time. Um, and that makes it so difficult to change and just leads to the sense of overwhelm. And I think the, the video mentioned decision fatigue is one of the things. Mm -hmm. There are only like so many things that we can, can worry about at any given time. And uh, there's just a lot of things to worry about in the world right now. I mean, we think about COVID, we think about like, um, um, about our future, the climate, um, what kind of jobs you're gonna have in the future. And so finding a way of, of doing this is really difficult. At the same time, it's still needed because in order for things to change, you need a critical mass. And so it's not going to happen by, by just saying, well, um, if this, these 50 companies are going to get rid of their business model, then the system is solved. I mean, why would that happen? And the only way that it's going to happen is by either inventing new technologies that replace those or by uh, making sure that um, that the products that are being 
consume basically do not require energies from fossil fuels or by changing the way we consume to things that um, that are more sustainable in the sense that they require less fossil fuels and so uh, it's it's this thing it's all of the above and where to start which makes it so difficult so I'm I'm going to again take a different um, approach here bring in a different dimension because in this age of social media I think one of our greatest problems is communication. Um, and what I mean by that is, last week a study was released, a very well done study that looked at 100,000 scientific articles that have, have been written about climate change. And the question was, geographically, what is being studied? What is being represented in this work? And 80% of the articles that have been published, the peer-reviewed articles that have been published, have focused on the global north. They've focused on the global north. And of course, we know that the global south is being hit pretty hard by climate change too, right? And so when I heard that, of course, as a scientist, as someone who does this kind of work, it was sort of, you know, the duh moment. But on the other hand, I began to think about the fact that it's still the case for many of us that this is an academic discussion. You know, we teach you the chemistry. We talk about the number of people who are going to be without water, and yet we go home and can let the water run as long as we want it to, right? And so that connection that needs to happen, that really basic human connection that needs to happen is something that is not happening as part of this discussion. And I don't have any solutions for that. I don't begin to pretend that I know how to deal with that, particularly since, as you both have said, there is so much fatigue over these big issues and the enormity of this problem. But if we don't find a way to make this human scale, this massive global scale, if we don't find a way to make it human scale, it's going to continue to be very difficult to move forward. Dr. Nash was making, making an excellent point. Um, like, the people who ca cause climate change and the people who suffer most are not the same people. Um, it's, well, if, if you live in the United States, your carbon dioxide emissions are, are eight times higher than if you live in, in a country of the, in, in many other countries in the, in the global south. If you live today in the United States, you benefit from from 150 years of, of rapid industrial development, which basically created kind of the infrastructure, the, the wealth that, that many of us benefit from. So, um, and which basically means that, uh, as also the video said, we are, um, even though we're affected, um, we are at least right now, to some extent, reaping the benefits of all the, um, of all the, um, uh, fossil fuel burning, we're also in po positions where we can shield ourselves from some of the effects of climate change. So for example, if you think about heat waves, um, at some point, like the human body is just no longer be able to withstand heat. Mm -hmm. And if you live in places where you have air conditioning, then that's, you're, you're going to be able to evade this, this negative consequence. But then if we look worldwide, especially thinking about areas around the equator, um, where air conditioning may not be that, that accessible, where power supplies may not be that, that reliable. So, so we're gonna find a lot more negative consequences there. And then even within the United States, um, it really depends where you are. 
um, do you do you have the money to be able to afford certain things that that may that shield you from the consequences and that's like something that we don't acknowledge enough um, I'm the other thing is there's also things that are not directly climate change but which, which are also like related so for example one of the things that I always underestimate is the amount of damage of air pollution um, about a million or several million people per year are, you, are having their life shortened by air pollution and that's burning off fossil fuels um, especially in places like India or China where a lot of the production centers are where the big coal-fired power plants are so not only is there like things that like if we think about fossil fuels where we if we get rid of them we have benefits for the future there are like things that we can do right now that actually would help us and would, would save tremendous amounts of life and, and remove suffering from, from people. As we discuss the enormity of the problem, I'm gonna pose a very difficult question. Um, what kinds of solutions do you think would make the biggest impact? And perhaps more importantly, how should we go about educating the public about these solutions and the short-term costs that change can incur? I'll offer, I'll offer one, um, and I think that uh, that would be that, you know, there, there needs to be a price put on carbon. Mm. I mean, it clearly has a cost. It has a, a cost in terms of our future, in terms of the habitability of certain parts of the, of the planet. Um, it has a cost in potentially unraveling organized human life. So it seems to me that um, a carbon tax of some sort um, needs to be implemented um, so that if you, if you are going to put carbon into the atmosphere, you have to pay for it and you have to perhaps pay for mitigation of that carbon. Um, that to me sound, you know, and, and that to me seems like a pretty common sense approach and it's been, um, it's been adopted in, in, in certain countries. <laughs> It's the stumper. That was just one, one, <laughs> one possibility. Yeah. That's yeah. just one possibility. No, the, the carbon tax, um, you know, has some, is something that has been discussed in the United States for a very long time, and there have been proponents, and it, there was a point where it looked like it might actually happen, and then there was pullback, and you can look at the discussions that are taking place right now in Congress. You mentioned Senator Manchin. Um, I've been following that those bills very, very carefully, and. Um, it again, we are looking at a system that encourages our leaders to think about their own little piece, to think about what they have control over, who elected them, and so forth. The system is not incentivized to encourage our leaders to think more broadly. Um, and so I think that until we get to the point where we have leaders who recognize that there are things that are important beyond their districts. Um, we're going to find it very difficult for this kind of needed, desperately needed legislation to pass. Um, when I was a senior in high school, I wanted to be an environmental lawyer. I was, I grew up at the time of Love Canal mm -hmm. and uh, the, the great um, uh, toxic sludge in that whole community and I was incensed. Uh, and then I took a government class in college and got really disillusioned <laughs> and said, I'm just going to deal with dead people. <laughs> um, but I think that what is really important here 
in this discussion is recognizing that the people who have, con who have the power to make these decisions are the ones who are going to have to, to do this. But on the other hand, I think it's dangerous to say to a person individually what you do makes a tiny little difference because uh, as we well know, there are many places in the world, smaller scale societies, where small groups of people have banded together and have made really serious differences in the way that water is used, in the way that food is brought to the table. Uh, and so I, I'm not ready to give up on that. Call me an optimist, but I'm not ready to give up on individual action. Mm. Right. I mean, I think like individual action is kind of the only direct action that, that we have and individual action is not something that, that should be designed of staying individual action in the sense that like if you do things which are, which are good for the climate, if you reduce your emissions, if you think about what you do, then you'll be able to impact the people around you. You're able, will be able to show that certain ways of living are, are possible, um, which then is a powerful, powerful message to send because yes, the people in power need to be, need to work on changing, changing society, but they'll only do that if, if they have reason to believe that that is like something that that is wanted, that that there is a benefit, um, not only to society but also to the way that um, that 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 ensures that that they will basically stay in 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 their current position. So therefore, it's yeah. So giving up an individual action itself, even though individual action is not the thing that's going to change everything, because we need systematic change, is is a component that can get us to acceptance to. Uh, um, to systematic change. So countries are going to gather in a few weeks in Glasgow to meet. Um, many of the nations that came together to uh, and, and agreed upon the Paris Climate Accords um, have not lived up to uh, the goals uh, or objectives that they said they wanted to achieve. Um, we've, we've already alluded to the fact that the United States is not going to be able to come to the table showing any real commitment um, to do its part to contribute um, to addressing this issue. Um, so I wonder if each of you have thoughts on what can be done at the systemic level um, and uh, in terms of international policy to address climate change. I think like we already talked about carbon tax but yeah the we need a system where like future consequences of of polluting now where or consequences which are far away so if you pollute pollute here and it affects the climate somewhere else for example if you are in the Maldives and the sea level is rising you're going to be a lot more affected by that um and it doesn't matter where the carbon is being being emitted so we we need a system where the costs are are shared in the sense that if we emit carbon dioxide because we live in societies that are that are rich that um where the standard of living is high then there is a responsibility to not only reduce our own emissions but also finance the technology finance the 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 adaptation in the sense of like how can we make sure that that places that that are more affected are less 
badly badly affected by, for example, building levees or any kind of technological solution. So that's certainly something where there is a responsibility on sides of, or at least in my opinion, a responsibility um, for, of richer nations, of nations that are polluting more carbon into the atmosphere to take leadership. And we see that to some extent. I mean, we're seeing that um, renewable energies are coming around. We're seeing shifts to electric cars, but it's still very expensive and it takes time. And so making sure that these technologies are available, making sure that these technologies are shared and affordable is really important. Um, making, sh well, and just committing to change, I mean, that's, and being able to follow through on it, but that's then something that, um, at least in, in many different countries, is difficult to do because we don't have good management systems of how to actually follow through on our commitments. So you noticed the um, dead silence when that question was asked. It took us a while to recover ourselves. Um, and it's not because we haven't talked about these things. It's because there's another meeting in Glasgow. Well, there was a meeting in Paris. There was, you know, we've been watching these meetings take place on the global stage for a number of years now. We are going to see the sixth version of the IPCC report on climate change released in uh, April of 2022. And no surprise, it says we may have underestimated the amount of change that is coming our way. Um, and so I think that it's very hard sometimes for those of us who are very action-oriented to be patient enough to recognize the kind of diplomacy that needs to work for these kinds of decisions for people to work together. So I think about this question, do we have any other examples? Are there other events in human history where the world has pulled together, has recognized a significant threat and one could, would, could say it's the ozone layer, the way in which countries came together to ban CFCs and the fact that the ozone layer is recovering. It's not there yet, but it's in much better shape than it was. Um, but the answer to that, simply put, is we found a technology that replaced CFCs that still allowed us to have air conditioning, <laughs> that still allowed us to have refrigerators. And now what do we know? The HCFCs are global warming gases. And so they could possibly be contributing to this other problem that we're dealing with. And so I think that as we try to, again, thinking about this, scaling this, we have to address the short term. We, this, this issue of mitigating is one part of the discussion, but the issue of adapting. How are we going to respond to our house that is on fire? How are those of us who are in a room that is well lit and climate controlled going to help my friends in the Gulf of Mexico, indigenous people who have lost their homes and are now living on boats uh, in the Gulf because they no longer have land with sea level rise? What is our responsibility? And you know, this kind of gets to the very heart of civic. It gets to the very heart of what it means to be a civic person, a civically minded person, but also civic engagement because ultimately climate change is a DEIJ issue. If there ever was one, climate change is a DEIJ issue. And so getting people to recognize beyond themselves uh, is really what, what it's going to take for us to do this. And as, as uh, Dr. Gerken was saying, those of us who have the means, recognizing that we cannot just sit by and sort of watch people's television sets float out of their 
houses in high tide. It means that we are going to do something, that we are going to say it is our responsibility. I think probably what you'll see, at least in this country, is I think you will see, um, this is my, just my personal opinion. <laughs> this, is not, this is not grounded in any, in any evidence, but I really think that, um, you know, I think climate change is going to create some pretty profound, of course, there are gonna be profound economic and social reorganization. There's gonna be profound social and economic reorganization, but I think political reorganization is gonna happen as well. And I think that, um, I think those of us who watch both parties in this country, political parties in this country, um, do very little in terms of climate change. Uh, I think you could see the rise of third Third, third party candidates. I think you could imagine, I mean, the Whig party used to be a thing and it's no longer out there. So it's entirely possible we could have a third, um, like a, a green party, for example, in the United States. Certainly that's in many other countries. Um, but I think that they're gonna be, yeah, I think they're gonna be, we see the fault lines and I think that there are gonna be some, some pretty seismic changes, of course, in the climate, but, but also in the way that we organize ourselves and the way that we, um, in the ways in which we demand change, because clearly the status quo is, is not working. Uh, I'm going to put in here my European perspective. So I'm originally from, from Europe. Um, and one of the things that, that is, well, Germany to be, to be precise, and we just had an election in Germany. And right now, if you, it doesn't matter from which party you are in Germany right now. So if you are a conservative in Germany, and run for re-election. Climate change may not be the issue you're running on, but it's not an issue that you, that you could have ignored in, in the election. Mm -hmm. um, so there, there is hope that even though we're currently not in a situation where climate change and environmental issues are things that, that are very highly prioritized, um, if there is sufficient demand by, by the voters it means that basically parties need to adapt and they need to put it, they need to compete on, on, on that issue as well. Mm -hmm. And so whether that, that means that there's new parties coming or whether it just means that, that parties are, are changing their platforms. But yeah, it doesn't, as I said, it really didn't matter whether you were conservative, whether you were a more sort of the progressive side or, I mean, there's also Green Party. There's also Libertarian Party. Mm -hmm. But each of those had climate change policies, which at least were at some point discussed. And that's kind of like something that hasn't happened yet. But that doesn't mean that it's not going to happen in the future. But once again, it then also requires people to care enough about climate change that they actually want to see that and that they hold kind of the parties accountable for, for the goals that are set, setting themselves out. There does seem to be a pretty big generational divide in the United States um, where younger folks do care about this issue a lot more. And I think that's really where, you know, we here can make a bigger difference in terms of being politically active, um, regardless of party and enforcing the parties to, to take it up as an issue, um, especially as younger people make up a larger and larger portion of the electorate. Um, but you can't change the parties unless you, you know, participate in them and participate by, by voting. 
state elections and and, na and national ones. And remember to vote this week in, <laughs> in the Virginia elections. <laughs> A week from tomorrow. <laughs> but you can vote now. Yes. Um, yeah, and, and to that point, I love what you said, Dr. Nash, about you know, this conference is what's different from it from the last conference and the conference before that is my generation and like the generation of students. Like we've been talking about this like since we were born is we've just been like, okay, it's it's a thing. What are we gonna do about it? But we've ta been talking about like, okay, what are we gonna do about it? You know, I'm 22. So like we've, <laughs> we've been talking about it long enough. Um, so now maybe to give us a little bit more hope um, what do you think the most impactful ways the individuals can address climate change since we just discussed the disappointment in our politicians? Learn how to talk about it. Learn the science. Um, I think that we don't often enough remind ourselves that being at a place like this, being at a university, is such a privilege. Mm -hmm. I'm a first-generation student. I work to put myself through college. But even that, even with that struggle, the very fact that I, I was able to do that meant that I had an opportunity in front of me that many of my peers did not. And I, as I often talk to my students about the responsibility of knowledge, that when you learn things, you don't just file it away, but rather it becomes the basis for action. And so I would say that one of the most important things that we can do is find ways to talk about climate change with unified voices um, and ways to talk about climate change so that we get across the complexity of it, that we are not afraid of talking about the different elements, the variables that are involved, that it could become part of dinnertime discussion again. Um, but I do think that while there is such a, the whole issue of the role of science in our society is so fraught now. Um, I think that bef until we can get back to acknowledging that science provides us with a way of understanding these problems, it's not the be all and end all, but it does provide us with important information. If we can get back to that and if we can work with our students who go home and talk to their parents <laughs> and their grandparents and maybe you don't even say the word climate change or the words climate change. Um, what I have found often in working with rural people in my line of work is that if I say climate change, they will turn off. There, there is no discussion that's over. It's politicized and everything else. But if I say instead, what changes have you noticed in your lifetime? What's happened in the last 10 years to your crops? Mm -hmm. What's the rain been like? You start having those kinds of discussions with people and all of a sudden you do start to see the wheels turn and because nobody had really asked them that question before. And so knowing what you know about climate change, use it to find ways to talk to people about it. I'm, I'm gonna add to that, and that's basically not lose hope mm -hmm. because it's really a easy to get resigned. It's really easy to like flee into like cynicism and apathy about things, um, but those are the things that actually are guaranteed to fail and not make a difference. Like, um, and like you are, or we're here at the university, um, whatever you're studying, um, there is going to be some relationship to sort of the global issues that we're facing 
including climate change, but not limited to it. And so you have the, the opportunity to play the short game and the long game. So the short game is you can ask yourselves, what can I do today? What are like the one or two things that I can meaningfully do now? And whether that is, is eating less meat or talking with your friends about um, certain, certain changes to, to their life, that, that may be one thing. But you can also think about what do I want to do once I'm out of here? What in my career? What are the things where I in my profession can positively make an impact? If you're a lawyer, if you are a, if you work in a think tank, if you are a teacher, a college professor at some point like us here, they are, or a scientist and engineer, and you you develop technologies that help us make the transition. So there's the short game, there's the long game, and both of those are going to be, both of those have their rules because uh, they're, they're benefits because the short game kind of like helps you to like not like fall into like the sense of despair, which um, is basically guaranteed to not make a difference. Or if you're a poet. <laughs> Sorry. No. I was going to say. No, no, oh, no. My apologies. <laughs> I did not want to include. No, the role of the arts. Yeah, I yes. think we are underselling the role of the arts. Well, and this is what I was going to say is that I think that, you know, of course, it, it the risk is is sounding really naive. But in my lived experience, it's it's not naive at all, um, because you're absolutely right. You know, if we lose hope, then you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> and, you know, suicide is something suicidal thoughts. Is, that's, this is something that. A lot of people, uh, some people these days really struggle with and, and very easily suicide, thoughts of suicide and thoughts of ecocide, right? The earth, kind of the earth's biosphere dying. Those become, those can start to kind of blur together, blur together in the mind. And we can see our lives as throwaway lives, disposable lives, we're not important. Oh, the planet, we're just a disgusting cockroach living on this rock, we should just, let's just get this over with, let's just die, right? And so that kind of thinking is very easy to get into. And so it, it strikes me that, yeah, certainly as a, as a, as a poet, I, as, a, as, an, as an artist, I, I very much value beauty. And I value the beauty of nature in that post 19th century sense. You know, the beautiful forests that surround where we, where we uh, where we are right now. Just going into those forests is so recharging and it can, it can bring us hope. And it can, it, it can allow us to, to you know, in our minds we can think, oh, well, the world's on fire. And yes, certain parts of the world are on fire. But Shenandoah National Park's not on fire. George Washington National Forest is not on fire. We live in an incredibly beautiful place there's still, there's still beautiful intact coral reefs on this planet in certain, certain parts of the globe. There's still wild elephants. There's still humpback whales. These things still exist. And so we have to cultivate gratitude, not as some kind of woo-woo kind of mandate, you know, um, or, or, or something, uh, you know, to, to virtue signal but as a survival strategy, right? To, to be resilient, you have to feel grateful for what's in front of you. And what's in front of me right now are young people who mm -hmm. clearly care about this issue and 
other side of me, my colleagues, obviously clearly care about this. And so we need beauty, we need, we need gratitude, and we need to come together. Because it's, it's not a matter of stopping climate change. We can't, we can't end it, we can't stop it. We can't return to the climate of the 19th century, right? We, we can't do that. So, you know, we have some really difficult challenges today not in the future. Today we have some extraordinarily difficult challenges, but we also have extraordinarily difficult, difficult challenges that await us. And we cannot do that if we're alone on our couch pecking at a, sc pecking at a screen all day. That it doesn't happen like that. And so we have to risk coming together, risk coming together, forming communities, and rising up and, and demanding, um, demanding change. Greg, you had no idea that I was going to ask this, so you can say no, but I wonder, do you have a poem you could share with us? This is a poem that is very important to me in terms of, um, <clears throat> in terms of just what I said. And it's a poem by, by Wordsworth. Mm. And um, many of you will know it. But when we, <clears throat> but so basically, the, you've, many of you have heard this poem, but, but this poem is, it's one that's about when you are depressed, when your planet is on fire, when your political system is in paralysis, when, you know, when you're depressed, when you're anxious, whatever. When, when, you're, when you're feeling terrible, you can consciously call to mind beauty. And if you can't remember anything beautiful, if you can't remember a tree that was beautiful or a mountain that was beautiful, you make one up. <laughs> so here's, here's William Wordsworth. I wandered lonely as a cloud. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high o'er vales and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. 10,000 saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft when on my couch I lie in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye, which is the bliss of solitude. And then my heart with pleasure fills and dances with the daffodils. And the Romantics were some of the first environmental activists. <laughs> they were. Figure out what you're going to fight for. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednickus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does this indication for us. 
Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.